Welcome to Killing Time, the podcast that investigates the darkest moments of our past to shine a light on wider histories. I'm Rebecca Adil and I'll be your guide. Sit back, relax and listen as we delve into the latest episode, The Milwaukee Cannibal. This episode contains graphic descriptions of crime scenes, murder and assault. Listener discretion is advised. At close to midnight on the 22nd of July 1991, Milwaukee police officers are flagged down by a man who claims to have escaped the clutches of a killer. He guides the officers to an apartment where they find 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer. Inside, they make a macabre discovery. The apartment is filled with severed heads and body parts in varying stages of decomposition they've stumbled into the home of a serial killer. In this episode, we're travelling to the late 20th century to explore one of the most disturbing cases in recent American history. To tell the story, I'm joined by criminal psychologist, friend and colleague, Dr Michelle Ward. Hi, Michelle. Thank you for coming on the podcast. It's weird to be talking to you in this format because usually it's completely different. Usually you're the one doing the talking and I'm behind the scenes. But how are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to do this with you and kind of experience the other side of what you do for a living. (laughs) Yes, the other end of things. But just for listeners, you're a criminal psychologist and a neuroscientist specializing in criminality. Have I said all that correctly? Yes. So I have a PhD in clinical neuroscience and I study specifically and exclusively the biological and environmental and genetic underpinnings of violent crime. Now I do it as a jury consultant and also I go into prisons I'll speak with prisoners, but I've been studying it for two decades now. But you've met some of the scariest people out there, actual killers, haven't you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are people I have spent hours and hours with who have slaughtered dozens of people, their own family, their own children in some cases, the worst of the worst, Um, just really trying to understand that abhorrent behavior. And today we're going to talk about one key case from the 20th century, and that's Jeffrey Dahmer. Yes. Can you tell me about him? Well, Dahmer's unusual. He was a serial killer who killed between 1978 and 1991 in both Ohio and Wisconsin. And what sets him apart from other types of serial killers is he was not a psychopath. Most psychopaths are not killers. You know, often they run banks or countries, but Most serial killers are psychopaths, but he had a very different background and a very different psychological profile. Could you tell me about his background? Where did he grow up? What was his childhood like? I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's kind of unremarkable. He was born in Wisconsin in 1960, and he had normal parents. And I don't mean a perfect childhood, but it was a pretty typical childhood. His parents kind of doted on him. He had a sibling he, um, They did end up getting divorced, but it wasn't a particularly nasty divorce. It was more amicable. But he did, you know, it, this is common with killers and those of us who look at killers is to kind of dive into the background to try to find a reason, a, a moment that made them turn. But it's it's usually not that simple. And in his case, he became an alcoholic. He started getting very heavy into drinking 
and he blames his parents' divorce, but in reality, it doesn't seem like that was it. It seems like he had some very strong psychological problems that led to this problem of murdering other people. Just that small problem. A little detail. He, what's interesting about him is that he did have strong affection for members of his family, specifically his grandmother. So when he was kind of failing out of high school, didn't look like he had a big future, his father convinced him to go into the military, but he was quickly discharged for his bad drinking problem. Yeah, and then he went in to live with his grandma because he loved his grandma and they were super close. But then obviously we know the end of the story here, but could you tell me like when the violence first started to express itself and this sinister edge to his personality? Well, that's what's so interesting. And this is one of those cases where I think early intervention could have actually knocked this guy off of his murderous trajectory. He became very fascinated with bones and dead animals. And his father and he, they would collect squirrel bones or they'd collect roadkill, try to, they'd bleach the bones, they'd put them back together. He was absolutely obsessed with how bones fit together, what the insides of bodies looked like. And I believe that's kind of what knocked him into this whole interest in murder. It didn't begin that way. And this is part of his psychopathology. So Dahmer wasn't a psychopath necessarily. They've diagnosed him as schizotypal. And that is a really interesting disorder. Before I get into the details of it, what I should explain is Dahmer isn't the type who loved to kill. He had urges to kill and he knew it was wrong and he didn't really want to do it. And this is kind of part of his psychopathology. A schizotypal person looks a little bit like a schizophrenic. They're not schizophrenic insofar as they don't have auditory and visual hallucinations. They don't see things that aren't there, but they're eccentric. They have really weird kind of affect. They distrust other people. They can have very weird urges and almost magical thinking, distorted perceptions. And in his case, you know, he didn't connect well with people, but he had this urge to kill that he described at one point as being similar to an urge to drink water or to eat. It just lived inside of him and he knew it was bad. He began, he didn't begin on humans. He began on animals and he would sometimes drink himself silly because he did feel bad about committing any sort of killing. So he would have to drink himself numb in order to do it. He was very fascinated by cannibalism and just the human body. It was part of this weird psychopathology and his psychopathology doesn't fit perfectly as a schizotypal, these these strange urges he had, we don't see that in, you know, in a typical person with that disorder. But it's these odd beliefs and like, you know, and he, he lived in a fantasy world. He was constantly daydreaming. And some of his first sexual experiences really kind of paved the way for the type of serial killer he became. How do you mean? Is that related to his MO and the types of victims that he went for? Exactly. So he was homosexual and he did have some experiences with men. But what he learned is he didn't like it when they participated in the sex. He was very fascinated by human torsos and he liked them to not move. So he would begin drugging his partners and keep them in this just the state of almost anesthetized and then would have sex with them. He did not like them participating. Well, this continued on and, and usually he would just try to keep them drugged and then do these sexual acts on him. 
But it ended up, he'd end up killing some of them and then he enjoyed the body parts and he would hang on to them. He was a bit of a necrophiliac. He was fascinated with how to store them, how to reposition them. And it became kind of this perfect storm of he needed victims. He liked them not to move when he had sex. And then he enjoyed looking at the insides of their bodies and keeping them, keeping them close, either eating them or, or just maintaining them in his home. Oh my gosh, it's so dark. It's so awful. Do we, do we know much about the victims, his victims? We do. He killed 17 boys and men from 1978 and 90, 1991. And he did so mainly by picking them up. A lot of them were sex workers or hitchhikers or sometimes just somebody he'd meet at a bar and he'd convince them to come back to his house to listen to music or have a beer. Usually all homosexual young men, but some of them were so young. And there was this one instance of this very young boy. He was from Laos, I believe. He he was able to escape and these women were helping him and the police came. But Dahmer was able to convince the police that this was his gay lover, that they were in a quarrel, that he had drank too much because he was all drugged up from the drugs. I mean, Dahmer would inject things into their brains. He would drill into their skulls and they'd be alive still and obviously very disoriented. And he was able to convince these police officers that this was just a lover's quarrel. And he dragged this poor child back into the house where he killed him. And I mean, he did some really horrifying, dark things. And he was very sick. He actually sought out help and told people he needed help. For over a decade, Jeffrey Dahmer had been preying on young men and boys. But how did his killing stop? I ask Michelle. He was eventually captured in a similar way. One of his victims was able to escape and report on him and the police went into his house and they found bodies they found weapons they found a very intact crime scene and Dahmer didn't deny anything he told everybody everything and he wasn't one of these like you know you think of a serial killer you think cunning calculating unempathetic soulless he wasn't like that he was obviously a horrible person and did horrible things but his background the reasons he did it were atypical they were not what we typically see in a serial killer. Oh, it's so fascinating. There's one thing that I want to come back to because we we worked together on a series called Mind of a Monster for Investigation Discovery and one of the themes that kept coming up for me as as the producer but you're certainly aware of this anyway was how serial killers prey on the vulnerable. I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. That's right. The victimology is often similar. It's the lowest hanging fruit. And by that, I mean people you have access to. And unfortunately, sometimes people who aren't missed right away. Sometimes when you work in the sex industry, there might be lapses of time between your communication with your family. So you can be missing without anyone noticing right away. Now, that, of course, that is not true across the board. There are lots of sex workers who have very close ties with their family and they're in touch every day and they live with them. But especially in the 70s, 80s, it was easy to find a victim on the street and be able to get them into your possession where that might be harder if you're combing a college or just the bar scene. You know, Dahmer did both, but certainly his most accessible victims were those he met on the street. And and that's very true for serial killers in general. If you general, if you're just trying to up your numbers and, and kill more people, it's an easy way to do it. And then there's also the added aspect of his homosexuality and the fact that he was preying upon gay men or at least men that were open to that 
And there's that story as well and the potential stigma. We've got a famous case over here and there was recently a TV drama made out of it about a guy in London that managed to kill four young men. But despite overwhelming evidence and victims turning up in exactly the same place in some cases, police dismissed it as drugs overdoses, even though families and friends said, well, this guy has never taken drugs in this way before. And I wonder if that's playing into this a little bit as well. I think it's especially given that they had a victim right in their face, but he appeared drugged up. He was, I believe, unclothed or to some degree he was unclothed. And they were just kind of like, okay, that's just what they're doing over there. They're doing drugs and having sex and just kind of moved on from it. Especially if somebody's a known sex worker, often the police treat it differently. It's a sad phenomenon, but you and I have seen it. We've heard it. Things like, well, you know, it's a vulnerable lifestyle or, Mm. oh, you know, he was killing whores versus killing co-eds. We've heard that dismissive attitude and I think it's alive and well. And it was certainly alive and well in the 80s when he was doing most of his killing. And it's an unfortunate reality that sometimes victims who either live on the streets or hitchhike or sex workers, not that those three things even are have anything in common, but sometimes they are dismissed as victims and so the serial killer gets away with it a little longer. I wonder as well about his victims and about the case. Was there an investigation going on with all these murders or was it only when a victim escaped that it came to light that there was, you know, a serial killer operating in that area? I don't think there was any particular, like, task force. I don't think it was on their radar like you and I have have seen, they have monikers for him, mm. um, you know, something like the the Milwaukee massacreist or something. I'm, I, that could be incorrect, but the, the M- Milwaukee cannibal, that's or the Milwaukee monster. But I believe those monikers came afterward. I didn't come across anything where there was an active kind of search like you and I have seen in other cases for the serial killer. I think that maybe there was no connection between the victims that the police were coming up with or like we said they were kind of just ignored. Oh my gosh and then so obviously he is finally caught. I just want to kind of flip over to this psychological side of things now and to talk about what he means as an individual to the study of serial killers? Was he so different to everything that had come before? Does he really stand out as a serial killer? Yes, Rebecca, he does. He absolutely does. And here's why. You know, he's one of those unique exceptions to the rule where had we just destigmatized mental illness, had had teachers, caregivers, doctors been more trained in recognizing the signs of schizotypal personality disorder, he could have been treated and perhaps not had urges to kill. That's not to lay blame anywhere because the reality is we just didn't know that much about it. We still don't. But it is true that whereas we usually are studying either really impulsive killers with head injuries or just impulsive personalities, or we're studying psychopaths who are cold calculating, there's no changing a psychopath. You hope they become interested in pro-social things like banking or running a country. You hope that base jumping becomes their livelihood and not murder. But there's there's no growing empathy for them. You can't fix that part of the brain. But with someone like Jeffrey Dahmer, you can possibly. I'm not saying he he's a specific case where he, you know, just this one drug would have cured him. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not even saying he would have been compliant. But I'm saying he didn't have this kind of 
destiny where he was going to do this no matter what. He even sought help, which made me think that perhaps he would have been compliant. I'm not saying he's not a monster. He very much is. But I think that because he is so different in the way that he became a killer, and it is it is incredibly important to say the vast majority of people with these types of mental disorders do not become violent. It's not a thing. Schizophrenics are not typically violent people, but but they can become violent. People on the schizophrenia spectrum, they can become violent because they they have some alternate realities that they live in. They have some delusions, some paranoia, superstitions. And, and in the worst cases, they have hallucinations that can command violent behavior. And that's kind of what we're looking at with Dahmer. What happened to him then? So he obviously would confess to all of these murders. Did did it go to trial? He confessed to everything. He ended up getting a life sentence for thousands and thousands of years. But there's a code of ethics. There is a judicial system that lives within prisons. It's so interesting to me that criminals have a hierarchy of what's okay to be a criminal, what, what's not okay, behaviors that are accepted, behaviors that are not. And someone like Dahmer is not going to do well in general population. And he was beaten to death when he was 34 years old. I believe it was in 1994. He was beaten to death by another inmate, which is not surprising. Usually you'd keep somebody like Dahmer away from the general population. And I think they did, but somehow this guy got access to Dahmer and um, it was a pretty brutal murder, just bashed his head in and killed him. And you know what? A lot of people weren't upset about that. And, and rightfully so. I mean, the guy was a monster, but... I would have liked to see him stay alive a little longer just so that we could study him longer. Well, that brings me on to my final question to you then, because obviously a lot of the criticism that's often levelled at true crime and looking into these things is that we go for the gore and we're not really appreciating the victims. And I think a lot of that criticism is warranted. But in actually, in your field of work, you have to study these people because you have to learn from what has gone before. I have turned most of my attention. I've been studying true crime before true crime was even popular at all. And I have seen a definite uptick in people's insatiable appetite for true crime. And we do have to be careful that we're not glorifying and exploiting the death of innocent people. I have turned my attention. I've always studied the, the whys so that we can understand it better. But really, my goal now is to educate people on the tiny nudges we can do to get somebody off of a bad trajectory. I'm really trying to focus efforts and interests in that. It's not as sexy as the crime itself, but I mean, if we can eliminate or reduce certain crimes, we have to try. And I've spent my entire life trying to A, understand the hows and the whys, but now I'm focused on what can we do? And there are little things we can do. I mean, simple things like feeding omega fats to children can make a huge reduction in bad behavior or even things that we can implement in prison systems that can reduce recidivism. The reoffending reduces if we introduce meditation and yoga and better diet. And it, that is not a cure-all because we have these personality underpinnings that drive this or head injury or impulsivity, but there's medication for impulsivity. There's things that we can we can do. And if we recognize somebody, even a psychopathic child, a fledgling psychopath, if we recognize him or her at a young age, we destigmatize de it because honestly, it's not horrible to have a psychopathic person. They they tend to be great leaders. And we 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 nudge that child into pro-social interests. That can make the difference between a serial killer and a president. 
Thank you ever so much for sharing your expertise, Michelle. My pleasure. I love working with you. I will come on anytime. In the weeks, months and years following Dharma's arrest, criticism was levelled at the police for not investigating the disappearances and deaths properly. And as details of the full scale of the horror of his crimes were reported, residents in Milwaukee held a vigil, attended by hundreds, to mourn the lives of those he'd taken. <laughs>